The Bob Murphy Show, episode 69. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is economist Richard K. Vetter. He's a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and Distinguished Emeritus Professor of Economics at Ohio University. And he's also the founding director of the Center for College Affordability and Productivity in Washington, D.C. He's the author of a classic book with Lowell Galloway called Out of Work, Unemployment and Government in 20th Century America. And he also wrote a monograph for Independent called Can Teachers Own Their Own Schools? New Strategies for Educational Excellence. However, the focus of our interview today is Vetter's latest book, came out in 2019, published by the Independent Institute, called Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. And that'll be the focus of the interview. I hope you like it. Well, uh, Dr. Vetter, thanks so much for joining us on The Bob Murphy Show. Glad to be with you, Bob. So the, the main reason I wanted to have you on here was to talk about your latest book, Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. But one quick little thing is I just want to acknowledge my debt to you. Um, you were a co-author, I think, on a book called Out of Work. I was indeed. Yeah. And, and that one, when I wrote my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and New Deal, I, you know, some of your data in terms of explaining, you know, why... Why was unemployment so bad in the 30s, but not during the 1920 and 21 depression? And one of the, you know, I think that the most straightforward reason, and then we can push it back and say, well, why was that the case? But that nominal wage rates were much more flexible back in 2021. They dropped like a stone. And yet, for some reason, a decade later, wages became sticky. So that that was a crucial thing in my argument was relying on your guys' work to show it's not just a fact of nature that, quote, wages are sticky. Uh, well, I appreciate that, Bob. That to this day, uh, uh, that's probably the most important piece of uh, research I ever did, and uh, I'm uh, very proud of it. And uh, uh, I think guys like you and me are have brought uh, some real uh, uh, meaning to uh, the Great Depression that wasn't there before. Some real meaning, some real truth about it. That needed to be told and still needs to be told, I think. But but that's, I guess, a story for another day. <laughs> yeah. If I could do one more follow up on that, is just your you know your quick reaction. If if somebody asked you like, well, okay, so you're saying it's not inherent to the market economy, and and you know, I gee, I, I didn't realize that that in 1920 and 21 nominal wage rates fell very rapidly, and so that's why you know the the price deflation wasn't so devastating. What what are the main, you know, in your book, what, what explains the difference? How come it was that wage rates seemed much more rigid, you know, after the 29 crash? Well, I, you know, I put a fair amount of, of blame on Herbert Hoover. Uh, he did. He was president of the United States. He won in a landslide, more or less, uh, less uh, you know, in the 28 election. 
in November of 1928. He was uh, venerated as being a great uh, humanitarian uh, for his uh, relief work after World War One or during World War One and and after. So we had this uh, very prestigious and popular president who uh, proclaimed that, you know, the way to keep this uh, stock market crash from uh, careening into something disastrous is to for us to keep wages high. And uh, as early as November of 1929, uh, with less than a month after the stock market crash, he's you know, meeting with people in the White House, people of great uh, importance and distinction, uh, CEOs of major corporations, and tell them, don't cut your wages. And it appears uh, somewhat miraculously, even to this day to me, that they largely listened to the guy and they followed uh, his uh, abnormation. And there there were other things at work, uh, I suspect, but that was a big part of it, um, and uh, it made it unique because in 21, Hoover, Hoover was uh, nothing. Uh, he, well, he was Secretary of Commerce and, as everyone said at the time, Assistant Secretary of everything else. He thought he just was the great economic expert, and he was a meddler even long before he became President of the United States. So. Uh, everyone thinks of, for a long time, thought of Hoover as this real conservative, laissez-faire uh, oriented guy. Far from it. He was a, a inveterate meddler, a social engineer as well as a, a real engineer uh, who uh, fiddled around with economies like uh, he fiddled around with other things in, in material things. And he, he screwed it up um, to a great extent. Yeah, it really is amazing just the, you know, because I, I know I was taught growing up that, oh, yeah, Herbert Hoover sat back and did nothing because he was devoted to the laissez-faire market economy. You know, bless his heart. You know, maybe he meant well, but he sat back and did nothing. And then, thank goodness, FDR came in and tried to get the federal government to do something about the unemployment. It's really amazing when you learn the actual situation. No, no, yeah. It's it's the, the, the conventional wisdom uh, then and still to some extent today, in spite of your efforts and my efforts to change it, uh, it's just the conventionalism is just completely wrong about Hoover, and uh, uh, you know it's uh, it, it had tragic results for the country. So now, speaking of tragic results, let's turn to your latest book, uh, "Restoring the Promise: Higher Education in America," and you you've just done a lot in this book. And maybe if we can just warm the listeners up to, so I think. People think, oh, yeah, college is really expensive now. But I mean, part of what you do in the book is you document that that's that's really correct. You know, statistically, like looking at the evidence, college has become more expensive, even even, you know, relative to regular inflation and so on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, uh, it it, some people argue and these are semi reputable economists. Uh, There's a couple guys over at William and Mary. Uh, college, uh, for example, that have made the argument, uh, Archibald and Feldman are their names, uh, that, well, the price of colleges is going to go up 
inherently because it's a service industry and uh, it it's an industry where it's very hard to substitute a labor uh, uh, with capital, replace uh, people with machines, unlike, uh, say, factories where you can do that. And so because labor is becoming more expensive over time with economic growth, that it's inherently going to become more costly uh, for colleges. Well, that argument is mostly fallacious, and to the the extent it had some validity at one time, uh, William Baumol made that argument 50 years ago. He argued (laughs) correctly that it takes four people to play a quartet of music, a string quartet, or it takes the same number of actors today to act King Lear as it did when it was written in around 1600. And that there's just inherent difficulties in bringing productivity increases in some areas. And uh, there's a little bit of truth to that. Teaching is a bit like theater in some ways. (laughs) Uh, I think we both would have to admit having been in that business for a while. Uh, But uh, there's some truth to that. But uh, the, 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 the reality is, is before about 1975, 1980, prices of colleges and universities were going up maybe one percentage point more than the rate of inflation. Now, the rate of inflation itself is a very difficult thing to measure. And those people who study things like Austrian economics, like you and I have to some extent, are probably more aware of this than the average economist. But even if you accept all the CPI data, price, cost of living data as being uh, pristinely accurate, uh, inflation in college college prices was modest before 1975, 1980. It wasn't zero, but it was very, very modest. So there might have been a little bit of truth possibly to the Archibald and Feldman argument. But people's incomes in that period were going up more than 1% a year. They were going up, say, 2% a year or so. So gradually, slowly over time, college was becoming more affordable to the typical American family. So that by the mid-1970s, a large number of Americans felt they could afford to go to college and felt the need to go to college. And so... Hence, college enrollments had grown from uh, a very small number. We had five percent of the population had uh, adult population had college degrees around 1940. By 1970, it's up to about 11 percent, and it's it's rising. So it's it's getting bigger. People feel college is more necessary and more affordable. But somewhere after the mid 70s, and I put a lot of blame on an expansion federal student loan availability in 1978, uh, a piece of legislation that no one talks about these days, but it turns out it, I think it had a lot of effect. From about 78 to now, uh, the federal government has uh, made uh, student loan money available to almost anyone who wants it, and uh, in large quantities. And so these programs grew, and I think that former Education uh, Secretary Bill Bennett, uh, uh, who wrote an op-ed about this in 1987, uh, saying that uh, 
if you the federal government has just made it easy for colleges to raise tuition fees they have in, almost invited colleges to raise tuition fees because they in effect say we'll we'll land, we'll give the students whatever they need up to cost of attendance which is defined by the colleges themselves and uh, so colleges uh, raise their fees uh, more aggressively uh, in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s and throughout the Great Recession up to very, very recently. It's changed in the last two or three years, by the way, some. But for a long, long, long time, and if you understand the principle of compound interest, you know, if something grows 2 or 3% a year, in fact, something grows 3% a year, it'll double in a generation or less, 23, 24 years. So uh, the price of colleges, uh, instead of going up 1% a year after inflation, started going up about 3% a year after inflation. So over the next uh, 40, 50, over the next 40 years, more than tripled. So college costs are, at, you know, three times or so higher than they were uh, in the 70s. And incomes have gone up a bit in that period, but because of a whole variety of reasons, the economy isn't growing as fast as it used to be. Uh, uh, again, I think largely because of government uh, 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 policies that have tended to have a, a, an effect of slowing down the growth rate of the economy. So we've had slower growth, Rap, more rapidly growing tuition fees, and so the burden of college has grown bigger and bigger and bigger, and we got this $1.5 trillion of student loan debt, et cetera, and uh, so now we're uh, in a pickle. And it's having all sorts of uh, unintended effects. People are getting married as uh, as early as they used to. The people who do get married, they're uh, not buying houses because they're uh, uh, loaded down with student loan debt. So we've had uh, re reductions in house, uh, home ownership. Uh, we've had reduction in fertility. Uh, you know, all sorts of side effects that no one would have ever thought. Well, I wouldn't say no one would have ever thought of. Brilliant people like you and me would have thought of this, but most human beings would not have thought of this as a possibility. And that's what's happened. And now one thing, too, that I saw about your book. So, for example, um, I think a lot of my listeners are familiar with Brian Kaplan's big picture view of education. Yeah. Where he thinks it's, oh, it's a it's a signaling model. And so even though he can say, oh, yeah, it's crazy that we subsidize this and we're in a bad equilibrium and it's an arms race. But, but he still thinks, oh, yeah, individually, it's rational to go to college and, you know, because you do better in the job market. But you were presenting some statistics that were showing, you know, I mean – even the shocking percentage of college graduates who are working at Starbucks and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, I like Brian's book. I, uh, talked to Brian about his book long before it came out. We met several times, uh, an interesting book and, uh, the signaling model is, is, a very much an appropriate thing to look at in, 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 in analyzing uh, college life. But, the reality now is even for the individual who goes to college, uh, it, it's becoming more and more problematic. Let's, you start out with 100 kids who enter college. Uh, 60 of them out of 100 graduate in six years, not four years, six years. Uh, 40 of them somehow drop out along the way. 
So, I mean, these are average statistics. So you got sure. six, 60 who graduate out of 100. Well, of those 60, if you believe the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and some others, mainly the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, however, about 40% of them are underemployed. They, they're working at Starbucks and so forth. That leaves 60 out of 100 who are who are gainfully employed at, at the traditional type jobs that college graduates get. Well, that's 60% of 60% because you've already lost 40%. So you do the math, that means only 36 out of 100 who start actually end up getting into jobs that are the kind of traditional jobs that college graduates uh, get in the professional areas, the technical areas, the managerial areas, and so on. So uh, that means 64 out of 100, in some sense, fail. In the, the they either don't graduate from college or they graduate from college, but they end up getting a subpar paying job, a job that's not much different than what a, a good high school grad would get. So uh, the, 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 it's, it's pretty risky business going to college these days. And I suppose, you know, some people might say, yeah, but, you know, the economy's so awful. The, the fact that college grads are the ones driving Uber and, you know, taking a job at Starbucks, that means the people without a degree are even worse off. And I don't know if that's true, but on the other hand, they're going to be four to six years you know, they're going to have four to six years more job experience because they didn't waste it at college. And they're going to have tens of thousands of dollars of less debt if, if they Ab never went down that path. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the biggest cost of going to college for most people are, are what us economists call opportunity costs. They're those years you gave up working uh, that would have given you, you know, a nice start on life at age 18, 19, 20, 21. You're uh, you're uh, adding to society rather than subtracting from it in an, some economic sense. You're uh, uh, adding resources rather than just consuming them. And uh, at a personal level, you're you're uh, you're picking up some income you would not otherwise had. Sure. Right. So just to make sure the listeners got that, I know you got it, Richard, but <laughs> that the relevant comparison is not someone who just left high school and then tries to apply to Starbucks and someone who just left college with, you know, a, a bachelor's degree in uh, sociology. That's not the relevant. The relevant is give the high school guy four to six years of trying to get those entry level jobs. And finally, he's going to get his foot in the door somewhere. And then he might have three years under his belt. And then he's the one now applying. And so then you can see, oh, yeah, with three years of experience in the real world, that person's a much more competitive candidate for these types of jobs we're talking about. You know, not to not to go into med school, but for a lot of the jobs that these even college graduates are, are ending up having to take. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the learning now that what you as you were talking, it reminds me a lot of the learning that people do in life is is on the job learning. It's learning by doing. And uh, the kid who goes out at 18 and gets a job, uh, it may be a, a relatively low-skilled job at first, but that person picks up leadership skills, discipline, uh, maturity, uh, learns how to make judgments, and so forth. And often by the age of 21 or 22 is – uh, doing a, a good bit better than he or she was at the age of 18 and is is got a good start on life. 
And uh, that is all lost if you go to college. Now, having said that, I'm not saying people shouldn't go to college. And if I, uh, I'm not a traitor to my own class because I still teach in my fifty-fifth mm. year of teaching, like wow. some, some sort of crazy fool that I am. Uh, but I, uh, I like teaching and so forth. I still do it. No, I, it's, it's not a, a antagonism towards college life. It's just the realities, uh, of what do the, what's the, uh, what's the evidence. Well, yeah. And something I noticed, um, when I was teaching is the, the rough rule of thumb, I would say is that I, I would say that, you know, half the kids shouldn't be in college. That, that I deal with. And, and I don't say that as an insult. I just like, they're miserable. They're only there because their family said you have to go, or they just kind of, you know, imbibe from the culture, like, Oh, you got to go to college or else you're a loser. And it was like, well, no, it, it, that doesn't mean that now twice as many people are getting this stellar education. It means that as an instructor, I ha I can't go as quickly through the material because I can't leave half the class behind. And so now the really bright kids are bored because I got to go over. And so it, it, it's, it hurts everybody. If, if we're making more people go to college than really ought to be going. And the analogy I use is say, do you think, what if everybody had to get a PhD? Can you imagine how horrible a policy that would be if we thought, no, to be a respectable citizen, you got to go get a PhD in something? Because then that would water down the programs. People would miss out on another six years of their life. And like, and then the PhD wouldn't mean as much. Absolutely. You, you, you said it well. And uh, it reminds me, Something that I've said, my late colleague Lowell Galloway, who just passed away, said uh, frequently in his life, and he was a professor not only at my university but in Ivy League schools like the University of Pennsylvania and so forth. He said uh, kids aren't learning as much today partly because they're not as bright as they were 50 years ago, uh, and they weren't, aren't as hardworking as they are. There are variations in human performance. We have to accept that. And so because there are variations in human performance, uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, we were getting, by and large, the best and the brightest going to college. There were exceptions even then. There were uh, kids who uh, bribed their way into college or uh, what have you even then. But uh, 50 years ago, you had a lot of highly motivated kids going to college, and you had, generally speaking, on average, kids who were, oh, in the top quarter or third or so of their high school graduating class, above average students in terms of their performance, in terms of their discipline, in terms of their love of learning, whatever you want, to, whatever qualities that make for a good uh, uh, student. Uh, today, you have more and more kids, as you were saying, are sort of felt compelled to go to college. Uh, their guidance counselor told them they had to go to college. The president of the United States told them they had to go to college. <laughs> right. Their parents told them they had to go to college. So reluctantly, they went to college. And uh, some of those kids shouldn't have gone to college. And uh, as you say, they clutter up the classroom. They uh, lead to a dumbing down of the material. And that was one of the things I found in doing my research on this book is kids aren't learning as much as they were. And this is hard to prove because we don't have very good, well-accepted, universally accepted measures of learning in our country. Uh, and uh, maybe because we can't agree on what people ought to learn, but we don't have that. 
But one statistic is pretty clear that I think uh, is pretty revealing in that regard is that the average student doesn't spend as much time on academic work today as was the case 50 years ago or 60 years ago. The typical student, if you believe the Bureau of Labor Statistics of the U.S. Department of Labor, their, their surveys, or you, if you don't like them, you believe the Higher Education Research Institute at uh, UCLA, uh, they come up with similar results. The average kid spends 27 hours or thereabouts weekly doing everything that is academically oriented, the average college student. That is to say, in class, uh, reading, studying, preparing papers, uh, 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 working on class projects, whatever. It adds up to 27 hours a week. 50, 60 years ago, it added up to 40 hours a week, sort of typical of an American worker. Uh, we've had a dramatic reduction in the amount of time people spend actually working at college, uh, working at doing what college students are supposed to do. So uh, it takes time to learn. In order to learn anything, you've got to take some time to read or listen or uh, whatever, uh, work in a lab, whatever it might be. Uh, uh, that takes time, and people aren't putting the time in as they used to. So college has not only become more expensive in total, uh, it's if you if you calculate the cost on an hourly basis, it's even the costs have gone up even more because people aren't putting in the same number of hours they did uh, forty or fifty years ago. Sure, I suppose one measure, and this is more anecdotal, but like to see how the standards have come down is just. I know at least at the graduate level, like I've seen people, they dig up old price theory exams, like from Milton Friedman's class or something. And now maybe that's a little bit unfair because, you know, it's just Chicago, but, but you know what I'm saying? Or even I know like it, at NYU where I went, it, it used to, I mean, it, it used to be, if you were getting a PhD, you had to write a book on that subject area. And then it turned into, Oh, just do three essays that are related. And then it turned into, well, just do three essays that are, you know, have to do with something about your field, you know, and it was because it's no, like you just no, keep cranking out PhD students. Yeah, the standards <laughs> have gone way down. In fact, I'm older than you, uh, Bob, and uh, when I went, uh, it was the end of an era. I, I, I took uh, foreign language exams in French and German, both. Uh, for my PhD, uh, and uh, oh right, you because know. so much, so much economics was you know you, to be able to read the classics, you had to learn those languages. Yeah, I mean that was the argument, and uh, and it's also argued that a, a truly learned person needs to be multilingual, uh, right. uh, and uh, because a lot of the great stuff uh, that was produced in Western civilization uh, were produced in uh, European languages, of, of which French and German were probably the most important. Uh, so I studied French and German. And uh, I didn't like it. I thought it was crazy at the time. Uh, but uh, the standards have changed even for, as you say, there's been even a dumbing down at the Ph.D. level. Although I would add in sort of arguing against what we've just been arguing, it takes forever to get a Ph.D. these days. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the humanities, the average number of time years it takes is something like eight years, which is just complete madness. Right. People go to school for eight years to get a Ph.D. in English, and they end up working at Starbucks. I mean, what? What? how is society advanced by that? Yeah. Let's take a break from my discussion with Richard Vetter to talk about 
my book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression and New Deal. As we mentioned in the beginning of the interview for my own book, I relied on Richard's analysis along with his co-author that they did in the book Out of Work to explain what happened with wage rates in the 2021 depression contrasted with the Great Depression of the 1930s. And it turns out economic laws work that what happened was nominal wage rates fell rapidly in the 2021 depression. And that's why unemployment, even though it spiked, then came down pretty quickly. In contrast, in the 1930s depression, Herbert Hoover, through various means, helped prop up nominal wage rates. So even as prices in general, consumer prices were collapsing, nominal wage rates did not fall nearly as quickly. And hence the real wage went way up, even as you know, the economy was collapsing and productivity was falling because of you know just the misaligned structure of production. So right when businesses were realizing they had made unsustainable investments, labor became artificially more expensive. And lo and behold, that made the unemployment rate go up. Imagine that. So anyway, that was a critical part of my case against Herbert Hoover and showing why he was not a laissez-faire ideologue. But there's a whole bunch of stuff in my book. And so if you want to check it out, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash depression. Well, we've spent a lot of time here, you know, criticizing it, but also you do have recommendations as to, okay, you've diagnosed the problem here, Dr. Vetter, but what, what, are we, what are we supposed to do? Just throw up our hands and say this is hopeless? Well, uh, if, if you left it up to the colleges to solve the problem, they won't uh, because they're happy with the status quo. By, I mean, by they're, the, they are inherently not uh, innovative organizations because there are no incentives in the system to be efficient, to, uh, to improve, to change. So it's, uh, changes are probably going to have to be forced from the outside. One area, a lot of the problem, uh, particularly relating to costs, relates to the federal government, to government generally, but particularly in this case to the federal government. Uh, this horrible student financial uh, assistance, so-called financial assistance program, has got to change. It's just horrible. And it is it has had uh, totally un, uh, lots of unintended consequences. It's raised the cost of college dramatically. It's contributed to the dumbing down of the curriculum that we were just talking about a few minutes ago, et cetera. So we got a deep six the federal student loan program somehow. And, and there's some ideas out there that might be worth a try that as substitutes, income share agreements, for example, could be totally private forms of financial assistance offered to uh, kids going to college uh, where we tell the kids, uh, uh, we will pay for your college, but when you graduate, you give us 10% of your income for seven years or whatever it might be. Uh, and, uh, that'll be the deal. And, uh, it's, it's a private deal. There's no government involved. There's, uh, uh, the, 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 the main risks moves from unexperienced, inexperienced, 18, 19 year old kids who don't know a lot about finance to, uh, seasoned investors. Uh, it's got some potential, uh, that way. 
Uh, yeah, can is, I can I ask you, uh, Richard? Because right there, I mean, that's an interesting thing where yeah. I've heard some people talk about it. That you know, if someone's going to lend you a hundred thousand dollars over the course of your education to get you know the tuition to go somewhere, you better be able to like number one, show that you're getting good grades, and also that what you're doing is going to get you a job. That no one's going to lend you a hundred grand exactly. if what you're going to do isn't going to yeah be employable. So it's actually it's funny how it's like people when they, in the housing bubble, the leftists complained about predatory lending. But I have maybe I'm I'm just haven't seen it. But I, have you encountered like is anybody mad about? The government's predatory lending of sponsoring the, or subsidizing these loans that then the kids that, take on all this debt. Good point. Good point. No, and yeah, the federal loans that go out now, there is absolutely no commercial basis to them at all. A kid who's got a four point average at a fancy suburban high school or private school who goes to MIT uh, in mechanical engineering. Uh, the surest bet in the world to graduate from college and pay off his loan or her loan, uh, that person gets exactly the same terms as the student who enters the gender studies program at the University of Last Resort, whatever university you want to pick, uh, that is it has a 15% graduation rate or 20% graduation rate. That's outrageous. It's utterly outrageous. It makes no sense whatsoever. So we need to do deep six this system. We just need to get rid of it. It's very difficult to do, uh, given how ingrained it is. Uh, and 45 million people currently are in, uh, you know, paying are uh, in debt to the federal government. That's a huge number of people. And they owe a, huge sums of money, many of them, and but we got to get the change. So there, there are a lot of things that ought to happen to higher ed, but that's one of them uh, that should happen. Maybe also state universities shouldn't exist. Maybe we ought to give money to the students rather than to the, the universities, to the, the customer rather than to the producer. Which, you know, people have talked about that with regards to uh, K through 12 education and the vouchers and so forth. And they, and, and uh, the evidence by and large is that that has had a positive effect. Uh, so maybe we ought to be doing the same thing uh, uh, with respect to our state universities. Can I ask you just to go back to the loan thing? I mean, I think it's it's easy to see, particularly if you're a fan of the free market like you and I am or are, um, that it's, uh, you know, there's there's like two equilibria. So one is if the government is subsidizing everybody's loans and anybody can get this huge loan and then, you know, pay it off over the rest of their lives, that will support really high tuition prices. So you're locked in there where, you know, yeah, it's really expensive, but, it, you know, it's, it's just you fill out this form and you get a loan to pay for it, at least in the beginning. Okay. Or a situation where you have a private lending market and so the tuition has to be reasonable because a lot of people have to be actually paying for it out of pocket. But the transition, I think, is where where people are like, oh, gee, like if if you just got rid of all the this government subsidized lending programs next year, you know, would all the tuition prices just come right down automatically, or would there be a, a you know a transition period where a lot of students, a lot of eighteen year olds, would realize I can't go to college, and you know, you get what I'm saying? Like, oh no, I think no that's there's what, a huge mm-hmm. transition problem, a huge transition problem. If we did a cold turkey, we just said 
uh, we've given our last student loan out, no more student loans, we probably would have some sort of uh, certainly a depression in higher ed. We'd probably have a, maybe a 20, 30% decline in enrollment or something, 10%, at least 10%. And since colleges are a high fixed cost business, uh, particularly the, the institution of tenure uh, helps that, although today, Faculty costs are only about a third of the total at most universities because of this administrative bloat that has gone on. Uh, but uh, it, it would have a devastating impact. There's just no question about it. And so for that reason, I don't think there's much chance that that would happen. But I do think, you know, there are ways that and there are difficult ways where you could sort of gradually wean people off loans over a period of time, make the loans more commercially based, uh, maybe move, uh, promote the income share agreements more, et cetera. And maybe in a, over a 10 year period, you could move to resolve the issue, but it, it, it's, it's not an easy thing to, to, to end. Uh, and uh, fortunately, the cost of colleges, or I say fortunately, markets are working uh, a little bit mm -hmm. now. In spite of all these subsidies, the markets are so powerful that we're now we've had seven years in a row of enrollment decline. And this year will be the eighth year. This year will go down, too, I'm pretty sure. I don't know that, but I think the new, new classes that are coming into college right now are, are going to be smaller numerically than they were last year. So there will be the eighth year in a row of enrollment decline. People are, are listening to what I'm saying and what you're saying and other people are saying. Uh, it's risky going to college. There's some dangers associated with it. So some of them are just saying no. And they're going to coding academies where they can study for six months. They can do an ISA arrangement, an income share agreement arrangement. And uh, I talked to the president of one of them. He said, hey, what we do is we charge the kids $14,000. We teach them how to code. At the end, 85% of them get jobs, good paying jobs. And we take 12% uh, of their income for three years after graduation. We charge them no tuition. Or if they want to pay tuition, they can, and then and then, then they don't have to pay us the money. They they can pay cash, twelve fourteen thousand dollars cash for this six month course, and 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 these are many of them are for profit institutions are doing this, and uh, so people are looking for new ways. Uh, when something gets too expensive, people try to substitute something else. Uh, one of the first things we learn in principles of economics, and that's going on in higher ed as well. Yeah, I mean, I that's the, the the head scratcher for me, and I think one of the stumbling blocks has just been it needs to be the case that more and more employers realize if somebody's applying here and they haven't gone to college or they don't have a college degree, that shouldn't be a red flag that this person's an idiot. More and more, it might be a green flag saying this person isn't a sucker. Yeah, and, and there's some evidence that's starting to happen. Some of these. Uh, uh, trendy uh, Silicon Valley companies, I think uh, Google, for example, have made it clear that they're no longer even uh, paying much as much attention as they used to uh, uh, as to what kind of degree do you have. And they're not viewing it as a disqualifier if you don't have a degree. Uh, they're saying, OK, you don't have a degree. Uh, and, you know, we used to be able to uh, employers could go out and give a little test, maybe a 50, 100 question test to to kids uh, or uh, adults, anyone who was applying for a job 
employment testing. Well, the uh, Supreme Court tried to rule that out, largely did rule it out in a case back in the early 70s. I think it's time for more of this kind of informal testing to come back in and for uh, employers to uh, look at a high school grad or a college grad or any person and say, uh, hey, it looks like just based on the basis of testing and basis of high school grades and so forth, that this person is probably going to be a reasonably good worker. And uh, we're less concerned about the specific college ed education. I'm glad you mentioned that because yeah. I've often thought, you know, geez, I mean, we're, we're talking, I mean, there's like a $100,000 arbitrage opportunity here. You know, can't these major, and especially too, for like Fortune 500 companies that they hire a lot of people, like, isn't it worth their while to develop some in-house alternative? And and so, yeah, I guess you're, I wasn't aware that, was it was it ruled that that was like violation of anti-discrimination hiring practices or something? Yeah, yeah. No, there's a case uh, in uh, 71, uh, Griggs versus Duke Power, uh, was the case where it was viewed as, quote, uh, that this employer testing caused disparate impact, that was the key phrase, on certain minority groups, particularly African-Americans in that particular case. And as a consequence of that, most employers, and they said this is impermissible, and employers largely moved away from uh, testing. Not completely, but mm-hmm. largely moved away as a, out of an abundance of caution against legal actions. Uh, so they stopped testing. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. We can change the law. That the law, what was involved here wasn't even the Constitution. What was involved here was the civil rights legislation of the '60s, mm-hmm. and it, and I'm not even sure the Supreme Court today would interpret it the same way. So, uh, if we made it possible for people to find lower cost ways of certifying competence. Uh, I think uh, higher ed would be in for a revolutionary change. Uh, it wouldn't die. Uh, and by the way, there are some people go to uh, who learn things well in college. Uh, uh, Brian <laughs> Kaplan, notwithstanding, even Brian would agree with this. Their kids go to college to become engineers, and they learn things in uh, studying engineering in college that they wouldn't pick up on their own very easily. Uh, the the discipline of a college education and the the uh, a lot of technical material associated with it are taught in college. And in the sense, of college is a vocational school for engineers. And maybe the same is true of accountants and a few other occupations as well. Yeah, well, we could just have people watching YouTubes on how to uh, do brain surgery. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, and that's the thing is, I'm glad you clarified. It's, it's not that you're you're against college per se. You're saying this is what's gone wrong and this is the way to fix it so everybody does better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we're uh, up against the time constraint here. So my guest has been Dr. Richard Vetter. Uh, Dr. Vetter, thanks so much for your time. I've enjoyed it immensely, Bob. And folks, the book is Restoring the Promise, Higher Education in America. I've got links here at bobmurphyshow.com slash 69 to see all the information on how you can order a book. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.